Welcome to Shucks About Everything, a literary podcast with your host, Sean Kilpatrick. Episode 1 on beauty, strange and crack-brained music, spitting in the culture's rosebud. The renaissance of today is using two hands to wipe. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern atop a cotton candy bidet. Disease on a pedestal. Mad butchers of the 20th century afoul of their own curation. What use is a mirror when Fig Newtons are on sale? War trophies in your palate. Aphrodite has been resanctioned for a pigeon shit receptacle. With guest Lee Levinson, we discuss Plato to Poe and beyond. What's your rundown of the symposium? I think I'm in the lesser knowledge here. This fuck got all of his friends together to have drinks. They all laid back, got super drunk, celebrating one of their publications of some sort. No women allowed, one flute player, you know. And we have Plato here just rapping about love. Beauty is truth to them, and Keats. I don't think he's giving much thought to poetry at all. I think what he's trying to do is wax on love, really, without any responsibility. He's giving voice to a few different speakers, having them all drunk, so basically they have really no responsibility for whatever it is they're saying. All of it's mostly bullshit. I mean, you even got a fucking doctor in there who's talking about love. He gives voice to a fucking doctor who shits talk all the other philosophers. He gives the stage, really, to Diatoma by way of Socrates, because Socrates is fucking blackout drunk after passing out in some other Greek's parlor. I think it's important to note that he does give the most important voice to a woman in here, considering how misogynistic the Greeks were. I don't think that he has much intention of defining beauty. And as poets, I think that that is absolutely below us, which is saying something. The first to actually speak about beauty in regards to physical beauty. And, you know, we're not talking Venus. We're talking, we're talking men. We're talking the boys. That is the foray into beauty in literature is uh, the beauty of young boys. Uh, like the satiricon and his his young boy that he wants. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. You know, you know how it was back then. They uh they didn't think that love was something between man and woman. That love could only really be shown between man and boy. Right off the bat, we're off to a strong start, aren't we? At least they're addressing beauty in in some way, even if it's uh, boy ass. Yeah, sure. I guess I guess you could uh, excuse that if we're gonna start a discourse to span all of uh, mankind. I guess. I guess we could brush that under the rug. So yeah, I see uh, nature. Nature doesn't really make its part into the conversation of beauty for a long time. Nature's always more of a backdrop. It's more of a, stead- a setting. It's more of like a how, how you would like the aesthetics of a play. More of just this is the foreground and nature is just happening on beside everybody. Beauty in regards to the symposium that they're talking about, they, they don't come off the bat and just say, yeah, that was a fine looking piece of ass on that 12 year old boy or anything. They're not saying, oh, I, I like him. Or we start off in the symposium as a beauty. The, some of the first few speakers, they're talking beauty as a way to measure a lack of disgust as, as almost setting a low bar for ourselves. Beauty is something that causes less pain. It's already like an indicator of negative space. Beauty is not adding something to our viewing pleasure and appreciation, just something that is an assuagement of life, something that is a pharmacon, something to ease the pain. There's some scapegoat element where they throw someone off a cliff 
that that leads to some sort of elation and drug-like rapture. I think sacrifice plays a role. You know, pharmacoposis, I'm not, I'm not learned. It makes sense if we're dealing with, uh, you know, mankind's eternal struggle to get outside our own head. If I could throw a goat off a cliff right now for a little peace of mind, bet your ass I'd move next to a cliff and uh, invest in some goats. Yeah, or everybody could go online and accuse everybody of shit they didn't do. Oh, uh, yeah, you could do that too, I guess, but... uh you really think these people are getting any real relief out of that or just the attention that they so desperately crave speaking on it as just a basic touch that i that i haven't read much about but one of his earlier works hippias major which is before the symposium it's important action of socrates trying to discredit pius of illus who is a philosopher who basically claims to be knowledgeable in everything but he can't define beauty so socrates sticks it to him and is like you're knowledgeable of all this fucking tell me what it is what's beauty and from what i've read hippias hippias i don't know how the fuck they say their names hippias we're calling George, I don't fucking know. Uh, he he defines beauty in three easy to sum up, but yet vague and elusive bullet points. He says, one, beauty is a beautiful maiden, which we all know he wasn't talking about a woman maiden. He was talking about a young boy, but whatever. So in uh, that is, I don't even want to say aesthetics yet because I wouldn't necessarily bleed that far into it. But so one, he's saying beauty is, you know, attraction at the basest of all levels. He's attraction, instant physical attraction. Not even lust, just attraction. The second one, he says gold, which is fucking wide open. What do you say? Monetary, flesh and wants, anything of the physical world, which I can get behind so far. Beauty being a maiden, uh, attraction. Gold being what? Money, fucking nice bottle gin, fucking bicycle, you know? He's he's on the right track. He ends it up with much to be desired. He, he says a happy life, peace of mind. These philosophers, obviously, they, they had the leisure to think, and that only brings trouble. A happy life. Maybe that is the original ignorance is bliss intro. Maybe beauty is just being fucking too stupid to even know beauty is. Then you get into Socrates. He also counteracts with three bullet points and he suggests that beauty is the suitable or fitting. I'm sitting at my desk right now and I'm looking at a candle. I could appreciate beauty what is in front of me, what is fitting. I could find beauty in a five mile radius. So he's not saying much to begin with. <laughs> he goes into the useful, which is his second one. That's almost Epicurean, something that could advance you or benefit you. Or Was that guy a sophist that Socrates was? Yeah, 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 supposedly so. Well, weren't they all? I mean, we're just fucking two poets who are talking here, and I could want none of truth. That concerns me not. If we're just talking beauty in itself, truth really plays no fucking part in it at all. We're both more Byron than Keats. <laughs> no, I like Keats. Identifying the properties of an object by its, I don't know, smoothness, delicacy, or tininess rationalism to the extent of disassembly. We're close to madness, and so to us, already groping along the dark for these types of understandings that will never be obtained by us because it would destroy our muse. In a way, it would put her clothes back on. Yeah, after the 20th century, it's hard not to see the decay. Right, so the whole the whole purpose of gathering all of the delinquents of ancient Greece together to drink and pass out and fraudage behind the scenes was to get to the butt of the bud. They're trying to ascribe definition to something that is just so ephemeral it denies its own definition. 
maybe it's just anger, but I have absolutely zero desire to pigeonhole beauty into a clear definition, into a category. This is the work of every single poet trying to fucking propagate their own agenda to their non-existent readers or I don't know what, few readers, a couple hundred readers, enough to live a life of poetry back in the day, which is futile in this day and age and the most nihilistic pursuit possible. Hey, this is what life is. This is what we should be focused on. You're fucking doomed from the start. I would call it very Ozzyan, peeking behind the curtain. You're not going to like what you see. So Plato, he deems truth to be the ultimate satisfaction gained from beauty, as if beauty itself is only a transportation device, only a river to flow. Once you get there, he really does think that true beauty is the marriage of soul and body. There is ascending everything he said before and now is saying that, okay, absolute beauty is going to be ascribing the initial desire for what it is you half-heartedly call beauty without any kind of intellect and then elevating it to a sense of soul, spirit, anything that is non-tangible, anything that is basically a side of the physical realm. So that 12-year-old boy, ask Humbert Humbert, but he thinks that the initial attraction will make way to a deeper interest. And that in itself is the definition of true beauty. Automatically, the soul trumps the physicality. The physical realm is trampled upon by something that has just made its way into the mindset, the discourse. Your initial lust is automatically trumped by something that is higher than it, even though that is being used to attain that kind of thought process, it's discarded right away because it is just a way to attain that. And spirit, that is everlasting. That is, you know, immortal. But the flesh, the flesh is easy. The flesh is willing. The flesh is ephemeral. It's costly. It's timely. That is what we should consume post-haste. That is something that does not last. Each minute that passes is a minute of decay. We need to fucking swallow that up while we can. The gods didn't like that we used to have two parts and we were split in half. Ah, that is Diatoma's speech, which is really remarkable. What you're talking about is uh, my favorite one as far as the other drunks, the other uh, fucking poet tasters. That was Aristophanes. He was also a poet and a playwright, and he suggested that Zeus, he suggested that mankind pissed him off somehow, as we do, because we are human, because they made us to do so, because we are fucking only made to do what they say, so how else can we expect to act? And we pissed him off somehow by some words, by some satanic virtue instilled in us upon creation and Zeus was not happy with that and split us in half and therein we are destined to find our other half and reconstitute the beast with two backs forever and ever. Diatomus, she she was the last one. She was basically the voice she was told through Socrates because she was Socrates's mentor. So she gave way to what is presumed to be Plato's opinion. But it's all very murky because he has Diatoma as the main speaker. I think that it is Plato's actual opinion. But she goes on to teach Socrates. Socrates comes to her with his own 
preconceptions of a young philosopher about what he thinks love is. The Rambo, if you will, the all-knowing adolescent genius. She goes into it. She lays it into him. She bitch slaps him, tells him to sit the fuck down, and she goes into her ladder of love. The only worse steps than AA. Well, love and alcohol, what is the difference? Besides the point. She kind of gives him a runabout. She really lays it out very clearly for him. And she tells him there are four stepping stones to attain the abstract idea of beauty. Her first step is very easy for us all to understand. A fat ass. Who is your lover? Who is your fuck toy? Who are you fucking? You're, you're swiping on some fucking internet dating site. What makes your, not dick twitch, but uh, what gets the spark down below, the oh hello down below? What is it that makes you tickle? Uh, not your uncle, but uh, anything but your uncle, basically, what makes you tickle? First step, what turns you on? Recognize it. Don't subjugate it. Don't try to fucking pigeonhole it. Don't narrow it on it. Just recognize. Awesome. Next step up the ladder. A, A turns me on. How do I go from A to B? Don't bring sex into it. Don't bring gender into it. None of that matters. Let's just talk aesthetics right now. I, I'm not into it. I, I don't want to fuck somebody who I'm not attracted to, but I can appreciate that other people would want to. And I could see that, that right there, that is an awakening. That is a, that is something that really breaks the norms of everything that you up to this point have ascribed yourself to. You're just acknowledging it. I can go from point A to point B and give credence to it. That's the most important part is recognizing the fact that it is there. Because once you've made that jump, that's that's basically the hardest jump for most people. Because you got to take into consideration everybody's fucking ego. Whatever this fucking bullshit public discourse is, I'm talking human beings and flesh. Once you could beyond yourself, your own discrimination towards attracting whatever. If you can at least open your mind to seeing how others can see, there you go. You're in the right direction. The third step. Is, is not that different. The third step is at least not a larger jump. The third step is attraction or beauty beyond the appearance, right? So now we're getting into the spirit, the mind. It's not even a jump. It's skipping a fucking stone throw away. It's just the abstract idea of beauty. It's, it's what he really gets to moralism. It's just... If I can get behind the spirit of somebody, if I can get behind the personality, the ideal, then I could separate it from a person and I could throw that concept onto an inanimate object, onto a mood, onto a lighting, onto an atmosphere, onto an aesthetic, onto anything. I could see fucking beauty in a fucking flame, you know? Elliot, man, I could I could show you fucking fear in a handful of dust is the same fucking thing. It goes back to what was the book we were talking about the other week about the guy who fucking gave personality to all the inanimate objects, the, the German text. It's the same thing. It's 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 just... A stepping stone to opening your mind. I'm not very up to date with the internet lingo, but it's some sort of pill. Let's call it the fucking opalescent pill. It's it's just it's ephemeral. It's amalgamous. Like it's it's just trying to get you to step outside your own bounds. But um, I think it's very very important not to forget that lust. Lust is the first step, my man. Lust is Plato's. 
foray into love, into beauty, into all of this. Lust is the stepping stone. Lust is the fucking apple. Lust is the reason Eve exists. There is no fucking beauty. There is no salvation. There is nothing without lust. Lust is the most humanist fucking idea we have. We are born with it. It is in our DNA. It is uncontrollable. It is what makes us human. It is the only thing I can get behind as far as humanity goes. It is something all of us have. And I think that Plato was spot the fuck on with lust being his first stepping stone with Diatoma, with Socrates, with all of them. Lust is the moral of the story because everything else is the fucking epigraph prostitution. Sex work is important, most definitely. Nobody's against you on that. But lust is the fucking cradle of humanity, the cradle of civilization, the cradle of creativity, of poetry. There is nothing without lust. If you want to fucking stick it in a pot and boil it all down till it fucking turns into actual sodium bicarbonate, that is something that you and your neighbor and your enemy and everybody can agree on. Politicians, I'll even shake a fucking politician's hand over this. We can all get behind it. Everything beyond that is superfluous. Diatoma lays forth her very, very cheap note, easy to comprehend system. She ends it all with something that might strike the fancy of most who are a bit in higher thought process than others. But she says that procreation is where you want to be. The whole purpose of lust, of appreciating beauty, of worshipping beauty, of going through the pilgrimage of beauty. And she does not expound upon that. She does not really tell us procreation, what that means. She says procreation, the Philistines of the day, the Philistines of today, the rubes, will kind of ascribe to that baby making. They will ascribe to that fucking and two pump chump dumps ready to fucking throw it into a fucking hole to churn them out some sort of fucking namesake to continue their lifelong fucking decrepitude into absolute nothingness, which is marriage, which is life, which is fucking love. And now we as poets, we as readers, she says that procreation is where we need to be. And procreation is not children. And this is not an anti-natalist point of view. Procreation is an art. Procreation as in these are the stepping stones to give yourself the palette to fucking paint. Salvation doesn't exist, but the concept of it does. So this is what we need to take to fucking arm ourselves with to therefore blow down whatever it is that we see when we open our eyes. This is what we need. This is the fucking information we need. We need to be able to see beauty, to therefore make art. We need to be able to open our eyes in a fucking gutter and appreciate it, or at least find a fucking discarded Tampax and then wax poetically upon it to ascribe our own beauty to it, to fucking make beauty where there is none. We need to vomit up the, the, the fucking hole in ourselves of beauty, give forth into the world and bless those willing to, I don't know, listen to us. View our art, read our art, look at our art without fucking desiring explanation. Procreation is art. 
True keepers of beauty ration it out for the Philistines for sustenation by the bite. There is no other way. As sad as it sounds, that requires from an audience some sort of intellect. And that's, that's where we find ourselves now. It's been lost in this age. It's been lost in many ages. It's been lost in all the ages. Nobody gives a fuck. But for the listener of one, at least we put it out there, no? Fatalistically and in vain, which is its own reversal of beauty. I think he describes love as a lack, a sense of lacking that seeks fulfillment in, in beauty or in the beloved. It'll never be reassembled or obtained uh, just because it's impossible to merge with somebody fully, right? You're in agreement with uh, Aristophanes? Well, I would agree with the most negative assessment of love possible, yeah. <laughs> Even if it's a lie, if you sustain it that long, it's sort of respectable. It's a, a shared delusion, at best. I do, for sure. But at what point does a shared delusion, at what point does a lie, at what point does even self-delusion turn into love? It's a totally separate ideal. I'm quite content with my current ideation of love and uh i don't want it challenged i don't want more difficulties than i have don't date a woman (laughs) yeah i don't i don't get it what would you say is your worst uh, love experience say the most feminine way of being insidiously uh pranked by someone over the longest amount of time uh with the greatest amount of expense oh worst love experience first girlfriend catholic school girl me public school Jew, her, blonde, eating disorder, beautiful, short skirt, all that beauty, great relationship, candy kind of storyline comes into play, drugs, we're all young, drugs take the prominence, uh, heroin, very young age of heroin, Vicodin, robbing, therapy, now I'm just listing off shit, my best friend dated her best friend, introduced us together, my name is Lee, for the records, L-E-E, she thought I was Asian, so she wanted to meet up with me, I, I, I don't know why that had any play into it, regardless, we met in the library, at 15, she recoiled, because I was not Asian, which I didn't know that I was supposed to be Asian, this is news to me, cut forward, Finger fucking in the library. I get a job in said library. Fucking the stacks in between the books, which I didn't really care to read because I had Catholic school girl in front of me. Do you remember any of the books? I took my lighter and burned it underneath the shelving of each stack that I was interested in to remember. Apollinaires, Caligrams, Akuls. I tell you right now, I'm 29. This is back when I was 15. 75% of my library now is made up of stolen books from that library. I used to take my grandfather's army surplus bag through the back door. Yeah, first love. Dated for a while. Young heroin addict at 15. Her, bulimic, not knowing her father. Eventually, she became a call girl. A hooker, a prostitute, whatever. She preferred the term escort. That went on for a little while without me knowing. And then she progressed. She was very businesslike. So she progressed to the, I I don't know the family's name because she never told me, but uh, mob-like. She was the call girl of whatever mob in that part of Jersey as it was, distributing packages along the ways of fucking different Johns in hotels while I was, uh... Busy, you know, filling my veins. 
And uh, that lasted for quite a while until uh, I left and I moved to the city to study something that I eventually dropped out of, which she still visited me for. Last I heard of her. That was my introduction to love. That was that was the loss of my rib. How were her transgressions revealed? Uh, too late. Too late. Too late. Too late after uh, no protection. Thank God nothing came from that, but uh, too late. Three years off and on. You can't help but just be grateful. I dated multiple writer women, so that's the... Uh... Ah, see, I've never, I've never dated a writer. I've actually only dated one artist. Painter? I imagine they're similar to poets. Yeah, beautiful. It was tragically beautiful. I got her addicted to heroin. Not intentionally. You know, that's just how it goes with junkies. We share what we love with who we love. If I continued with her, if I continued with another artist or another painter, I could tell you that much. If I continued along that path with another artist or poet, I would most certainly be fucking dead. She went back to Kansas, man. <laughs> she fucking Dorothy. We lived together in the city for a few years. Her painting, me, uh, at the time I was a photographer, that ended. She went back. I stayed. I went down. She stagnated. I went really down. Halfway houses, rehabs, fucking wellness, all that. Last I heard from her, she hooked up with a very abusive man who I tried to intercede with, which she wasn't having any, and that was the last I heard from her. It has taken me many years to come to a realization of the meaning of life, and I have discovered the meaning of life. The meaning of life is the recognition of beauty, but it's taken me many, many, many years out of necessity. My girl has therapy once a week, and she was in the bedroom. She, she was doing her Zoom meeting with the therapist. It's about 1.30 in the afternoon on a Tuesday. I'm sitting there. It's been a few months in quarantine, so I'm drinking quite heavily. I'm reading Baudelaire's Spleen for the umpteenth time, and I, I don't remember which story I'm but I'm reading it, and I'm sitting against the window. And I'm halfway, my my left ass cheek is hanging out the window. My right ass cheek is on the fucking fake alabaster, whatever the fuck you want to call it. That is my ass cheek fucking rest. And uh, I'm reading it, and I'm chain smoking, and I'm drinking. I'm looking out over the fire escape. I am within reach of falling down five floors. And I'm wobbling back and forth for fun, just to see where it is I'm actually standing. What, what, what fucking gravity? I'm drinking a lot very early and the sun is shining beautifully and I don't know, something strikes me. I feel a slap against my face. Something, I don't know what it is, you know? You want to call it the muse, you want to call it hypocrine. Everything melted away. It was just beauty. It's just being able to recognize something that electrocutes you something that actually gives you a tinge of feeling a tinge of warmth anything and finding that being what made me seek that out in every single experience i lived going forth i have to find the beauty in everything that i'm in otherwise why the fuck not just cut my throat right now adam wakes up one day i don't know where the fuck he is cool, there's some beautiful trees, there's some fucking plants growing, there's some whatever. He wakes up, who the fuck am I? I've woken up many places not knowing where the fuck I am. 
you know, he turns to his right side and he sees Eve. He sees what I could only imagine being the most sublime beauty there is to have ever graced the eyes of humankind. And so he sees her. That would calm me down. Eve. Eve assuaged him. Eve, the ideal of beauty, was the first humanistic soothsayer. Mankind, humans, as people, we, we are nothing without beauty. makes beauty more subjective and he takes the utility out of it and the idea of perfection and the objectivity and the purpose and leaves it all to taste and how it makes you or the viewer or the beholder feel not how the emotion is necessarily but pleasure or displeasure way more friendly to the imagination than his enemy Spinoza who thinks imagination subtracts from the abstract truth that is part of how in the 20th century everything becomes uh, this disintegrated science piece, objectivist poetry, whereas Kant is leading into romanticism where things are opening up to the lyrical feeling and the sublime, the shock and awe, the overpowering. Christina's world, right? Yeah, okay, very, very plain picture, beautiful, but very plain. So the rule of thirds basically dictates that it is way more aesthetically pleasing because she is actually within one of the first and thirds as opposed to being placed in the center of it, that it kind of just draws your eye in and allows you to navigate the image or the painting more than just directing it straight towards the center and forgoing everything on the outside. Now we have Hogarth, a spiritual platform similar to Plato. It starts off very basically, very fitness-like. He, he gets into describing the calves or the buttocks of a horse and how to identify the aesthetically, first of all, pleasing image. He, he's talking about like a war horse and a talon horse or, or a common horse. You see a war horse and it is built the fuck up. It's, it's all muscles. It's all the, the glutes and the ass are all just tight. But the head fits proportionally on it. Now, if you were to swap out the head of a war horse as opposed to a farm horse, peasant horse, that if you were to swap out the heads, the fitness is all discombobulated, that it now automatically turns into something grotesque. It has a beautiful composite image that he has created of different plates where they are all numbered and uh, it's just all different images that he references throughout. It folds out like a Playboy centerfold. It's, it's, it's really quite something. You go back to the uh, second step of the ladder, right? So you, you recognize your lover, you recognize you like them, you like the ass, you lay that over to another ass, a stranger ass. But Hogarth takes it a step further. Variety in itself is a cause of beauty. The composition of it being different is attractive in itself. And he is, in essence, negating Plato in these regards, which I am all for, because variety encompasses the disgusting, the decrepit. Variety encompasses things that are not classically affirmed as beautiful, which Plato does not like. Plato regards that as more of a negative space, but Hogarth is basically trying to get you to see that that in itself is beautiful because it is something on the opposite side of the spectrum or maybe underlying part of the spectrum that you are normally subjecting yourself to. He says, the ear is as much offended with one even continued note 
as the eye is with being fixed to a point or to the view of a dead wall. You could you could live with Zoe Lund. Watch her shower while your pet rats scamper across the apartment floor. It gets old. You know, I'm, I'm sure Adam lusted after the seraphim. Schumann became obsessed with a singular note and he could not stop it. And I think that's a beautiful parable. We are not automatons. We have many different layers. If we are able to recognize that within ourselves, we would be lying to ourselves to say that we are content with one type of any You're going to eat pizza for the rest of your life. You're going to want to fucking suicide yourself in an Italian's home. But yes, the S-shape, his line of beauty is uh, serpentine. I would like to draw a line between his serpentine S-shaped automatic interest of the viewers and Satan and the snake in, in Eden. The tongue, the snake, everything up until then was just, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. God is omnipotent and I am here to serve. And then here we come, the greatest villain of all. We have Satan. When he first comes into the garden with some sort of weird species of bird, a Cormite. Kind of interesting that the serpentine, the curved line, the flicking of the tongue that subconsciously excites the viewer is also on par with the adversary. There was this big argument, Pusinists, I'm probably saying that very wrong, and the Rubenists, the same argument, plain versus the elegant. One group favoring drawing, and then the other group favors how ornamental the colors would be. Tell versus show, ornamental versus story, a tale. We're getting into the self and nature over God, where the truth of God and virtue is falling back because science is advancing. No God, we're all atoms, and it's very nominalist. The full nihilism of a scientific universe. The juxtaposition works very well for poetry. Now, that went away with the theory heads in the 20th century. We're entering the Nietzsche era. We're getting into art as a counterforce to truth. Schopenhauer's effective beauty on the subject. We're getting into, for the poem's sake, we're getting into a single session of derangement. We're getting into didacticism as heresy, the unity of effect, right? It worked very well until the 20th century where things became so atomized that you stop getting good lines and you start getting uh, gibberish. Musicians, if most of them try to think, and we're, we're poets and we listen to them, but this is the way philosophers would look at, or even novelists would look at poets trying to be didactic in any sense, uh, whereas it's, it's probably excruciating. The introduction of political correctness into the culture mainstream, that killed all irreverent, satanic fun of poetry. It was on life support. It's almost as if all classifications feel dry to a poet, because we're way out into the elegant, we're way out there in the vehement. Florid, if we're messing up, dry is something that's overly scientific. Plain is the majority of writing. Many have a Bukowski and dogmatic view of Blair's wheel of language technique is a good divider for the atticism versus Asiatic. Atticism being down by dry and plain, Asiatic being neat being in the middle, Asiatic being elegant, vehement, florid. What do you think the role of beauty plays in literature? Death is the mother of beauty, Wallace Stevens. So when Eliot says that Pater's art for art's sake is a great way for a poet or artist to stay on their art and not try to tell people how to live and be didactic in the work, he has a great point. He's criticizing Pater for saying that art for art's sake is a way of life. A lot of modernism is a great refinement of art for art's sake until it began to fall apart into post also has its merits, but then that begins to fall apart into sincerity, etc. And then we're at where we're at. 
that is the highest possible level of literature is to somehow have a Promethean aspect to steal the fires and siphon it off for paperback value of $7. But I do not think that that is exclusive to literature in itself. If you were to say such a broad statement that literature is art or literature's purpose is to expound upon beauty, where do we find ourselves in the self-help section? So maybe some fucking sorry state wanders into the self-help section and drops to his knees and pronounces beauty in the middle of Barnes & Noble. And who is to say he's wrong? But literature and beauty, I think, are not exclusive. I think it is the highest possible tension. In every dream home, a heartache, man. It's nobody's job. Nobody out here has the goal of beauty anymore. If somebody fails, who do you blame? Do you blame the writer? Do you blame the reader? You can make the argument that the reader has the duty to seek that out. You can also have the argument that the writer has the duty to present it in a understandable, accessible way. Both are wrong. We're all wrong. Everybody makes their own. God, beauty is elusive. I think that it really falls upon those who desire something more. That makes sense? Mellarmé, the penultimate is dead. The language becomes a separate thing, and it's almost meaningless, but it's not. A horror story where language takes over the story and a theoretical impact into the 20th century and, and his structures, his disruptive, fragmentary. It's become denigrated from formalism by the anxiety of influence in Miltonic Satan and the rebellion against formalism and God as the virtuous beauty and truth of the type of poem that everyone is doing because it's in the same structure. And so the city and its demons and its hellish horrors and etc. becomes the new beauty, the derangement. I'm trying to use Bloom's idea of the poet as Miltonic Satan rebelling against other poets, which has become now this dogmatic, intentional semi-literate thing in our age, but back then was a revolutionary, technically not in the uh, social sense, but in the form. It became a revolutionary escape from formalism into free verse and form still, but using it in a more deranged fashion to discuss topics of the modern, which was important for Baudelaire, the painting of the modern state. The obsession with originality is especially now perverted, but had some formal merit. You can find examples of people breaking form forever, but at that time, it really coalesced, especially in France, led by the inspiration of Poe. That was uh, the revolt from God, God being the beauty of structure, virtue, the bending of the formal structure to fit the lyrical self and nature as it appeals to a very primitive, but Poe is revolting the transcendental because he's perverting it. But it started with a very humanistic take. All great art is God shown in its golden ratio type beauty. Then society's advancing, it becomes humanism instead and, and the lyrical self and nature and then finally we get to our era that is now ended, just recently ended, that began with Poe. There were some precursors 
Baudelaire becoming, I mean, still formal to some degree, but also using the city and confessional elements and his own perversions, and then Mallarmé making everything technical to the point of theory. Baudelaire's better the poor. After uh, being abused of these polemicist reactionary texts, he goes through the city, the skeleton of the demon is the city, the deformation, the new beauty. He um, sees a bum, the bum pietously puts his hat out. He begins to smash, kick, clubs the bum, but then the bum regains himself, breaks out his teeth, the Baudelaire Rimbaud eyes another, turns the tables on him voraciously, and then he's, he says, ah, you get it its own beautiful, transcendental, and undemolished way. Everything is now the inverse. The man of letters is the enemy of the world. It's the commie versus fascist, and the poet's response is, whoever's beating me the best. Another upside down of Plato, who put us at the bottom, but since Poe at the bottom is now where you want to aspire to. Before, it was more of a escape to God to overcome or to philosophize your way out of when D. Nerval hung himself from a sewer grate, when the Industrial Revolution smashed its way into the new formalism of verse. Now, would you say Celine had a part in all that? Celine is an interesting combination of the vehemence of the post-World War One nihilist, the rage and the elliptical, fragmentary, but also he's not being uh, overly lingual. He's in a pure vehemence mode, according to Blair. The style is a um, mixture of neat elegance and somewhat plain, but also elliptical to the point of meshing into this weird vehemence father of the internet. Let's not forget Jack the Ripper if we're talking modernism. I believe that Lotremont was actually, uh, you know, the devil. The way that people, I guess, believe in God, I like to believe that Lotremont and Maldoror was written by the hand of the devil, and in the same hand was Jack the Ripper. I see too many people who don't read yet contribute. The artist's biography plays absolutely nil. The Poetic Principle is a very important text for us to warm ourselves with. I think it's worthy to mention, and maybe we can rope back around to Emerson's The Poet, because they were contemporaries. They are wholly of different worlds. Poe really did pilfer Emerson, but he reinvented it. He made it his own. He, you know, traversed the, I guess, natural... Emerson's The Poet, 1844, versus Poe's Poetic Principle, 1850. Emerson's, he introduced his own essay with a quote from his own poetry, which you can't do anything but applaud. His ode, he refers to beauty as the sweet tyrant of all. Now, sweet implies that we are grateful for it, that we are the use of it, as opposed to it being the use of us. And to recognize your own tormentor and therein praise it is something to bespeckle everybody's opinion of it all, regardless of contention. My back is whipped really, really bloody, but I love the taste of iron. Beauty is its own excuse for being. Emerson lays forth, and this is his term, he lays forth three children. So he says they will be called Jove. Pluto and Neptune, right? The Romans. They did not pilfer originally. They pilfered quite lazily. Then he goes on to say, theologically speaking, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. So right here, he is extending his will towards the men of his era. 
the uh, religious, the followers of Christianity. You lay it forth in such demented fucking terms, even the janitor could follow along. The father, the spirit, the son. Oh, hey, I, I, uh, oh, I, I, I know what those guys are. Okay. And then he goes to, in his words, the knower, the doer, and the sayer, which scratch the first two. That's all we need. Don't plane yourself to apply to everybody. The knower, the doer, and the seer. The lover of truth, the lover of good, and the lover of beauty. He skips over the first two, and he says the poet is the sayer, the last, the namer. The poet represents beauty. The poet's job is to introduce beauty. The poet's job is to harness the sun. I was reading Sanders, Maura Vagine's author. It took him over 10 years to write a very succinct novel because he was too busy being drunk and rallying against writing, which all poets are guilty of. He only had one arm as well. <laughs> Fast forward a few years, Poe, he gets into it very well. His essay on the poet is really harps upon it and does not do in my opinion, a great job of disguising it. But I, I, I don't care because he takes it in a very different direction. He rallies against and he does the Rambo. He does the Moravision. He does the new is important. The new is what matters. The new in regards to the old, you must know the old to trash the new. But he reinvents it not many years later. These are the three different uh, categories. The first one is pure intellect. The second being taste which is beauty, and then the last one being moral sense. He is the father, or one of the fathers, or the sperm donor of modernity. He embraces the disgust of the dweller of the gutter. He also has a short essay, The Poet's Vision. He makes uh, a very simple point, just saying, Poe says that poets... And he is using the term poets as a form of all artists because poesis stems from to create. Then he goes on to basically just kind of like slip in between the pages that all artists are irritable. But he says, and I paraphrase it, something along the lines of an artist is an artist only by the dint of his exquisite sense of beauty, a sense affording him rapturous enjoyment but at the same time implying or involving an equally exquisite sense of deformity or disruption, disparation. This very short writing of his, this is the fucking flaming rat that spurned the Chicago fire. Poe is the biggest influence upon Baudelaire. Let's blood brother ourselves upon that at least. This is my problem with Plato. Plato brought into conversation the concept of the deformed as a lesser of beauty, or beauty as a negative space of the deformed, whereas Poe is welcoming it. Poe is outright acknowledging the beauty that extends itself upon all horizons. He welcomes it all, disgust, decay, decadence, but this right one singular line right here, now you can clearly see the impact that it lent itself to, as opposed to Rambo flipping a coin to the homeless as a, uh, a, a green-eyed youth who will spend his last dime on the begging, as opposed to Baudelaire, who is fully, fully understanding of man, regardless of class system.
And I think that those two are rivals in their essence. Baudelaire really does embody the archetype of the satanic principle. He is the true humanist of us all. I love Baudelaire because his complete segregation of his work with politics. Because Baudelaire truly is the party of none. He was the first to spell it out plain as day, the role of the poet. That the poet does not belong to any camp. And politics do not deserve the attention span of the poet. That being said, fascism belongs all of three places in my opinion. One, the kitchen. (laughs) Coming from my own background, I think fascism belongs only in the kitchen, the bedroom, and the page. That's it. There's a great line in um, Baudelaire's Intimate Journals. I have found a definition of the beautiful, of my own conception of the beautiful. It is something intense and sad, something a little vague, leaving scope for conjecture. I am ready, if you will, to apply my ideas to a sentient object, to that object, for example, which society finds the most interesting of all, a woman's face. The poet of no party says in his journals, not published in his lifetime, that my opinion of the vote and of the right of election, of the rights of man, the element of baseness in any sort of government employment, a dandy does nothing. Can you imagine a dandy addressing the common herd except to make game of them? There is no form of rational and assured government save aristocracy. He's misconstruing his own place amongst the hierarchy of society as a dandy. Yes, on the surface, he was a dandy, but in spirit, he was a bum, as we all are who fancy ourselves men of letters. Shell shock of modern society, God-sized machines. One example that you can track is Schopenhauer losing his mind when he's hearing the carriages and the horses being whipped. His pessimism is being writ large by his landlady being a cunt and by the noise of the bustling square. It wasn't planned as far as a manifesto. Those came later. It was a natural rendering and reaction to what the reality of the times were, are, and well, not right now, but were up until a few years ago. Now we're in a social media hellscape. The beginning of a transition, so it's hard to identify, but there is some sort of transition going on. Well, just as far as the perverse is no longer I'm talking about on the page I mean obviously in life everything sucks but on the page things are becoming dumb and a little weak things on the page are becoming diary we're going to be Enoch Soames disregard from history not even paid the dignity of a violent death we're going to be ignored beyond obscurity unsalvageable obscurity that does not stop the work and it in some ways inspires it there's a kamikaze element that is sublime. The new sublime is kamikaze in nature. It's Bushido. Maybe this is why Mishima is making a comeback. There's a hopelessness, a fatalism that I've only ever been inspired by, but that is to say it does look like maintaining this line of thought has become completely not viable. It wouldn't earn you a living back then. Now it will earn you worse than that. It will earn you... It's beyond millennial oblomovism into a buried bottom of the dumpster, a fuck you for your work, a chattering nada. 
Satan. Satan. He saw man being ogled by God, right? And he's the most beautiful creation. So we're his underlings and we're working on this project of beauty and what we see when we look at who is vaunted, not always, but most of the time, is humanism, human commonality, the commonality, according to Stirner, we see the opposite of our goal, uh, rewarded nonstop. And it's encouraging, well, I'll say it's a bit excessive at times on the will, culturally though, not for the work. It's a separate thing. It's a, more of a weaker human element. We would take it further by perhaps embracing the annihilation of a crowd, which is the millennial tribute. But that would be its own art and would insult our work with words. And so I don't encourage it necessarily, but theoretically... <laughs> to cause the massacre on the page. Maybe that's the last of Baudelaire's modernity. The dying screech of it was the school shooter. The shell shock lost its world luster. We become niched and postmodern and ironic echo of an echo of an echo. Despite appearances, the world is safer and safer and safer. The crowd shooter, mass shooter, is the millennial. When I go to high school, it's Columbine. When I go to college, it's Virginia Tech. When I go to grad school, it's Aurora. The proto-millennial mass shooter and their deranged, pill-headed in their eruption is the closest thing we have now to shell shock of going to war because the wars are these weird, foreign, faraway, small, ongoing police actions. And so mostly what we have is this terroristic police state age. The shell shock has become much quieter and much more random and practiced by children who are crying because their pills, or they can't cry because their pills are too numbing. It's pathetic. The killing of God on the altar of beauty. The entire timeline of our culture from the 1800s till now is Lucifer having his revenge, an ode that he is saying through shell shock. And it's finally become a whimper with social media. Yeah, and it's become an ambient whining noise where it used to be way more blunt. Lucifer's, uh, Milton's Lucifer, not an actual religion. Milton's Lucifer is speaking his revenge in the face of humanity in an inverse beauty, which is him, as the new god of this modern era. Problem is it's become so ambient that no one can hear it anymore. We've lost touch with Lucifer's voice. And um, this is why the work is suffering as far as what is rewarded and what is not. And what used to be rewarded because people recognized trauma easier, and now every trauma is a piece of strawberry cake. How do we make beauty work for us? We've fallen trapped to Plato. Motherfucker was right. There is always a use. There is always something to be bled. How do we siphon it all off and turn ourselves into the Promethean archetype that is the poet? I was walking earlier today down in the east village down toward bowery and making my way past a opened gallery of some hodgepodge of i don't know it looked like recycled butcher paper that was melded into a hammock with some twigs intertwined in it that stretched upon the small room and my girlfriend and I looked in on it. You know, we see a little gathering, a little bit of art. It piques the interest. Shall we invest in it? Shall we dedicate a few moments of our time to this? 
is it worth it even though we have absolutely nowhere to be without entering of course even though it was free because of the hesitation and the initial angst we looked in on it and what we saw was a gathering of people surrounded by a small mousy figure who i could only presume was the artist in question and she was in the process of explanation which automatically turned me off from it all we are in the age of the art of the emoji we are in the supplication of the poet taster the people who want all their vomit pre-masticated regardless of the art that we uh peaked before laying sorrowful eyes upon this exhibition of disgustful another depressing fucking minute to add to the already depressing minutes until we're so sick of our own fucking calluses that we have nothing more to look forward to than the fucking taste buds on the back of our throat callousing to no longer discern the taste the whole concept of the artist statement it's superfluous jargon it's meant to humanize the spirit by way of explanation of the unexplainable everybody fucking so desperately wants art explained to them because they were cut off from their own mother's milk there is no going home my mom used to tell me that all the time as a child i don't know why maybe because that is the yiddish in her the cynical outlook of judaism we're in the era of explanation. The artist's expository statement has become text-worthy. It has become a thought bubble in a pudding screen. It's become so much piss in a violin. There's no performative element. She should have been up there, stab a patron. There's water on the moon and I'm thirsty, motherfucker. A great improvement of Poe's over uh, Gautier is, I think, Poe's disdain for cats, where Gautier loved cats, and the tradition of great writers who love cats really gets on my nerves. It speaks well to the dandyism of Gautier that he was into cats. I, I appreciate it. But also, a cat is a very strangleable, an arrogance, a type of arrogance to the animal that makes you th not think of feminine graces, but your worst ex-girlfriend. Perhaps one's worst ex-girlfriend had many feminine graces, but could kill a cat easier and with less consequence. The boomers were the last to vulgarize art with 70s cinema. The page was suffering its last death throes as far as the public eye, and the boomers brought us cinema. The millennials are like the boomers, and they're a bunch of softies on a big commune. The millennials didn't even offer us a vulgarized cinema. They offered us they, they offered us YouTube, they offered us cat videos and inauguration speeches. His intro to Mademoiselle de Maupin. We realize how bad the, the news has become now, but it was always bad. You know, he opens it with, One of the most burlesque incidents of this glorious epoch is beyond question the rehabilitation of virtue undertaken by all the newspapers of whatever color they may be, red, green, or tricolor. The theophile in his preface here, the critic who has produced nothing of his own is a coward. Fuck critics, fuck the standard, the provocation of the status quo in the name of art. Art used to hold hands with the status quo a little more helping us achieve heaven than helping man achieve utopia. These are 
become divorced. The idea of the newspaper man, cop, lawyer, censor, these become anathema to the writer, to the artist. One of the best assessments against censorship and for art for art's sake ever done. They applied to literature the article in the Decalogue, Thou Shalt Not Kill. The least little dramatic murder was no longer permissible, and the fifth act had become an impossibility. Gautier, Theophile, the original uh, pederast of the mind. <laughs> we, as modern, post, 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 fucking whatever hell we live in these days, poets, failures, absolute decaying life forms, Poe was the first, besides ripping off uh, Emerson and Theophile, respectively. I do not trash him for that. You know, he must be blind, the person who is unable to perceive the radical, the chasmal differences between truth and the poetical modes, the theory-mad people, those who are obsessed with the philosophical... Truth has nothing to do with fucking beauty. How fucking conceited must you be to ascribe those two even in the same camp? Truth and beauty? What? I'm sorry, what? Nobody has any original thoughts anymore. That's why it boils down to style. Because there is no original thought. There is only expression. Otherwise, otherwise, we're just a gaggle of fucking oceanic birds chirping each other's fucking ways. Peacock's essay proclaiming poetry is futile and trying to persuade the men of his day to pursue a more appropriate way of living, which is the antithesis of poetry in and of itself. <laughs> Four ages, the first being the Iron Age, the second, the, uh, the Gold Age, where really the gods impart their essence into men. That's where we get epics. That's where we get the ancient Greeks. Then you come to uh, the Silver Age, that is where it's more uh, polished, it's more civilized, it's a bit derivative of its predecessor, which all ages of all art always are, ex nihilo nihil fit. They, they start to put into faction more rulings in their writings. And then we get the final age where it's a bit more bottleneck down, it's a bit more polished, it's more societal, it's a bit satirical, it's even more simple. We are very crass with our consumption, romantic in the sense of everybody is their own god, everybody thinks that their own existence is worthy of a story, worthy of an audience. It is very unrefined, it is very raw, nobody uh, does the work, nobody really works on their work, you can tell most of the time because it is a elongated tweet. Oh, lit took it, where they really took the Michigan perspective of each line in and of itself, at least in their own minds, where everybody thinks that each line 
must stand on its own, which I agree with Lish on. I do not agree how it is interpreted. I do not want to hear that you got a coffee and a bacon, egg, and cheese at the bodega and that you passed a homeless man and that he was beautiful because he was living in the time or whatever bullshit everybody's trying to shove down our throats these days. Voyeurism is not necessarily a perspective. This is what differentiates the poet from the poet taster. You can regurgitate what it is you see or feel or think and lay it forth for those to invest themselves in, or you can transmute it. Shelley, the most beautiful death. Death is the last frontier of creativity. He set sail with a friend of his that went under. His badly decomposed corpse washed ashore. Somebody identified him from a copy of Keats's work in his pocket. They then tried to immolate his body where it lay on the beach. And due to him having some sort of illness, a calcification of the heart, the rest of him burned. But his heart would not burn. He was a fucking poet to the end. His heart would not burn. Somebody then took his heart and submerged it in a bottle of brandy refused to hand it over to Shelley's wife. Jesus Christ. Oh, testicle spectacles. Watch him. Wallet fucking Shelley. God damn it. Watch over me. Please watch me. Shit, whatever. Just watch me. Give me something. But fuck. It is up to us to transmute beauty and disgust and decay and decrepitude and decadence and disease and to paint a pretty little picture for someone. For one. The audience is never to be the forefront of the mind through the work. Some people don't want to know what you know. Sometimes what you know is banal. There needs to be a cutoff. There are many people whose diaries I want to read and hear from, but that is not poetry. This is not an all-inclusionary club. This is not an everybody's welcome club. Because then it turns into a public swimming pool, which as we all know, is fitted with fucking urine. This is not transcription. This is creation. And fucking burns and scars and scorched life and empty bank accounts and cancellation and no friends and no loves and no family because all we care for is the word and the work. There is no feeling good about yourself. I have never written a word I liked after the fact. One can only judge the beauty of life by the beauty of death. The poet's duty is death, but the real duty is to immortalize that death in beauty. To take the beauty of the torment and make gold out of fucking mercury. Whether it be understood and not understood. Just don't tell me about your fucking day. Peacock's meanly ironic genius essay. Thompson and Cowper, and Thompson is a Scottish 1700s Thompson, formerly beautiful nature poems and Cowper was a popular plain language guy. It's almost like he's saying Marcus and Franzen. And Thompson and Cowper looked at the trees and hills which so many ingenious gentlemen had rhymed about so long ago without looking at them at all and the effect of the operation on poetry was like the discovery of a new world. Painting shared the influence 
and the principles of picturesque beauty were explored by adventurous essayists with indefatigable pertinacity. This gave what is called a new tone to poetry. They wrote verses on a new principle, saw rocks and rivers in a new light, and remaining studiously ignorant of history, society, and human nature, cultivated the fantasy only at the expense of the memory and the reason, and contrived, though they had retreated from the world for the express purpose of seeing nature as she was, to see her only as she was not, converting the land they lived in into a sort of fairyland, which they peopled with mysticisms and chimeras. This gave what is called a new tone to poetry and conjured up a herd of desperate imitators who have brought the age of brass prematurely to its dotage. The descriptive poetry of the present day has been called by its cultivators a return to nature. Nothing is more impertinent than this pretension. Poetry cannot travel out of the regions of its birth, the uncultivated lands of semi-civilized men. This, this is fun. What you lose with Shelley is he's able, in that utopian brain, to hit really high heights in lyricism, in his prose with his polemical, political essays. Imagine responding to this amazing essay with a little tract, like you're making a pamphlet. He's a reply guy that doesn't figure it out. Because he was kicked out of Oxford for his atheism, a pamphlet. As a poet, he thought, that taboo got me in trouble. I'm going to do that. Maybe that was part of it. You know, he's, he's a great poet. But I dump on him only in reflection of the age we're in now, that he would definitely be a, a very millennial type. This innate, ineffable intangible fucking uh, gift that is supposed to... I'll know it when I see it. I'd like to have it. I've seen it in practice. You know, I've seen in high school, uh, I wanted to be a writer, and I'm writing really bad poems, and I know they're bad. At least at least I knew. And I had a buddy. He didn't go on to cultivate it, but he wrote it, and it was just naturally good. It was unexplainable, because he wasn't studying poetry or even trying to be a poet. The brain was just wired to do it without effort. So there's something to it, but I, I think people put way too much stock in it. The proximity isn't enough not cultivating the innate talent and then using that as an excuse. What became reduced of the wilder poets before the academy dragged the life out of many of them in the late 20th century is now a new kind of mediocrity. The necessity to navigate the status quo in regards to the way literature is handled academically, especially now, has become absurd. You know, I got in there right before things went really haywire, but it also I was too late at the same time to make any use of it. If we have to burn someone alive, it doesn't matter. It's whoever the problem is. You know, it's not really a ideological issue. It's, it's whoever the barrier is. Because what we do is burn our lives down in order to make a thing that isn't profitable work. Those who take pride in the mundane, especially in poetry, the minutiae of someone's psyche and the disguising of language with a fear of bad taste for anything with bombast has destroyed this art. On the other half, driving it into dry jargon, that's your only purple. The flarf was the last explosion of interest in the weird. That was the death knell. There's a lot of shit-sucking piety afoot in the field. There always was, but it had different suitors. What it was before was the piety of good taste for a refinement and a subtlety of iceberg, buried, simple, simplistic cowper, plain, what became way too much of a calculator with AIDS, a fucking 
academic John Cage, X algebra of the new sentence divided into devolved the cut-up method into something less than experimental and then without a sustainable result that hasn't been worked right. Then we get to the old argument, say, to say even Cowper versus Thompson is not this extremely elegant formal ode to nature versus an encompassing tale that every citizen can enjoy, well done and epic in its scope and reaching their hearts and making them feel something, even though it, what we have now is just two inverses of the very far end of this wheel. Saying poet's duty, that's juxtaposition to rely entirely on formalism can achieve a hollow beauty but why not make a combination a juxtaposition and uh, throw in a little anchoring so if you're getting too formal you anchor it with a little rawness a little of that overvalued sincerity but just a bit again one embarrasses oneself by sounding technical about what should be holy and the unholy vocation in the piss career but it's all conversational like submitting it's its own separate side of it alexander thoreau is the patron saint of anybody who wants to work with elegant language he's not allowed to be discussed because first of all everyone's illiterate and then second of all he's He's not politically okay. And he was set up by several of these things before it was popular, which is very impressive. Part of the trade wasn't as predatory as advertised. Tangled into elegance beyond description. Still completely coherent. Flawless. Dismissed. The way Harold Brockie's Runaway Soul was dismissed. Shitty, shitty reviews. Just complaining about the language willfully, pridefully semi-literate people. When I see Darkenville's cat, it's above my station. No one is as angry as he is. Big, rich family that would make fun of him for pissing the bed, and it just built a psycho amount of angry energy. You got a kid that's wet in the bed, you don't you don't laugh in his face, or you create one of the greatest vehement minds in the world. This is according to his brother, and him versus his brother, who's also a writer, a very plain... He calls him a beach reed. We get a slur... Satanus aestheticus, the dragon-scaled scribe. Poetry, if truth can abscond from form, is a compendium of bestiary-like delegations of the soothsayer for none, fraught with evil intention. Satanus aestheticus, as suggested by the late great Benjamin de Cassiers, affirmed plain as milk for the audience of Nil the true intention of the poet. Milton spelled it out for us. Baudelaire... Poe, Emerson, Shelley, Verlaine, Davidson, etc., they all laid bare the teeming louse raping the gray matter of the select few. These are the gods in our hands, venerated and yet ostracized by the public who suicided them. The classics lay forth the understanding of the profession of the outlier, and yet still to this day, poetry is a hate crime term used to bolster up Taurus and demean the definition to such as an overpaid cartographer. Everyone so desperately wants art explained to them, because they were prematurely, yet rightfully so, cut off from that somnambulistic oil of Ariola's offering. I feel a malicious imp weighing upon my shoulders, growing heavier with each breath. So be it. 
Abusus non tolit usum. Felicia must fall. The lengthy search for an anodyne unknown to man has slowly morphed itself into a sordid acceptance of embracing symptoms over disease. Ungrateful hosts of society dare have the gall to determine the worth of individuals so blasphemous in their inclusionary incendiaries of acceptance that to scoff at such unworthy gatekeepers would be flattery in and of itself. The dragon-scaled scribe contends God's existence, however swarthy, by their vengefulness. For, if either of them truly do exist, to each creator their image is most certainly painted with hues of tenebrous pigments. All beauty is nymphic at a distance for the poetaster, distance being the tell-tale fortitude of the rubbernecker. The preservation of beauty lies its an ephemerality, a tacked flesh and vestibule grown fat against the blade. Personage as a shadow, ever pervasive in its tautness, dripping sacrificial wax down the geometric tree strumps. Ashtrays wherever eyes wander, mommy dearesting the wound, seeking Eucharistic, wanton salvation amongst the neophytic. Art thou able to orgasm in proximity to a uniform? If the answer contains contemplation, your day job rules the night, sweetie. Leave the horrid amalgamation of extending one's own decadence to those whose skin itself is the game at hand. Through pursed lips and locked jaw, the world flops belly up, gurgling its slatinly sputum, heretically bucolic bird dog aching for a portraiture worthy of gilded enclosure. Herein lies the poet's condition. The alphabet is not free real estate, nor has it ever been. Gabriel staunchly requires the self-soothing scar to adorn the foreheads of those who deny their own entrance, let alone masquerade gumption as a personal affront to the atticistic monasteries squatting themselves a blue checkmark in the inexcusable flesh and varicose veins on display for underground Maldora rites. In this age of Goyotat mimicry, Lycian perverse laziness, Hannah knockoff drivel, biblical recipe redaction, Baudrillard roller coaster cop-outs, I am a theophile, a true worshipper of Aphrodite, a backhand, meated vestibule lurking in the sewer grates of such a post-post-modernist hell which frames my abscessed veins taut as the separation of sky and salted sea. Anesthetized again, yelps the troubadour of accessible art. Are we, as a conglomerate of wishy-washy, swayable consumers, expected to bear back the swath of simplistic forefronts of existence in such a hellish alabaster reduced to plastics? This unction assertion of snide lotion for the masses to get comfy has no place in the annals of art. I renounce all intention of accessibility over true blue expression for the sake of unburdening the soul of its poetic caveat. Vegetative states come laud seek to discredit the humility of suffering's awareness in regards to Satan. Whose gender reveal do I have to ethically protest in defense of Promethean transcription? The current publishing houses concern themselves fraught with the zodiacal man. I suggest strychnine to the masses for re-education of what it truly means to damn oneself with the investment in such a fatalistic endeavor as poetry. Death to all designers, feigning advancement of art and beauty. 
when the lobby is strewn with human excrement from overexposure to the innards of the individual, we, the self-chosen, shall contract you swiftly zigzag a pretty picture through the back door. Until then, stay seated in quiet glass. Bespeckles the rhinoed sky with grave allotments for purchase. Yet still, branded cattle curse those eschewed of silence. Voyeuristic pedestals perch St. Peter something silly. The sky is most certainly blue. Yes, thank you. Clearly Shakespeare could be summed up neatly enough to permeate prime time, but in doing so the loss of illusory beatitudes, coruscades wanton, indifference to style. Well, fuck me with the thesaurus, huh? Shall I purchase plastic surgery for my tumors? Please, do enlighten me as to the appropriate definition of beauty, since explanation is the guiding force these days. Let's get downright platonic with it so as to advance the sales of lubricant. I consider the non-canonical history of the beast of light colloquy termed beauty to be a war. Then again, what self-respecting poet does not consider every god-given refraction of light a war? Just like in its parties, there are only two sects of criminals whose work I burden myself with, and those are the crimes of passion versus crimes against humanity. The first being all artists, and the latter the toe-tippers, if you will, of creation. Both criminals in their own right, but only one is worthy of respect, for the only crime against humanity which has any lengthy toll in every civilization is the trampling upon the utmost sacred of humanity's progress. That being what is solely our ability to recognize and then become the true keepers of beauty, rationing it out to the Philistines for sustenation by the bite. Why else do you think they charge to view the purdy pictures in a gallery? As a staunch individualist who holds on high the absolute sacred ideology of art, the only true warmth I have ever found in this life is the heat emanating off forlorn brethren throughout Poesis that is, in its succinct definition, being to create. In the most modern extrapolation of the written word, the painted canvas, the scorched screen, the earthen clay made animate, etc., which calls to arms the outlier of the age the artist suffers through, therein transmuting flesh and holes made beautiful for consumption by all. If you care for supplication by way of easily digested motherly masticated art for free vomit to gnash around in toothless mouths may i recommend internet and much of it The following are quotes. The eternal slaves of beauty are the masters of the world. Art may be served by morality. It can never be its servant. The metaphor is of no importance. Any one will do, and the more you mix them, the better chance you have to catch a passing impression of that elusive brightness. An explanation is the most depressing thing in the world. Words are an art form. Stop trying to use them to communicate with. In an age rowing rapidly toward annihilation, who is without irreverence is without 
honesty. Scrape the surface of language and you will behold interstellar space and the skin that encloses it. All art is anarchical. To take art seriously is to be unable to take seriously the conventions and principles by which societies exist. Real literature can be created only by madmen, hermits, heretics, dreamers, rebels, and skeptics. Not by diligent and trustworthy functionaries. Tis you speak, that's your error. Songs are art. Whereas you please to speak these naked thoughts instead of draping them in sights and sound system. True thoughts, good thoughts, thoughts fit to treasure up. The great artists of the world are never Puritans, and seldom even ordinarily respectable. No virtuous man, that is, virtuous in the YMCA sense, has ever painted a picture worthy looking at, or written a symphony worth hearing, or a book worth reading. Art comes to you proposing, frankly, to give nothing but the highest quality to your moments as they pass. Art for art's sake, with no purpose. For any purpose perverts art. But art achieves a purpose which is not its own. If you have so earth-creeping a mind that it cannot lift itself up to look to the sky of poetry, thus much curse I must send you. When you die, your memory die from the earth for want of an epitaph. Huge, shapeless rocks have a pleasing kind of horror in them, and the wide ocean awes us with its vast contents. But when forms of beauty are presented to the eye in large quantities, the pleasure increases in the mind, and horror is softened into reverence. A kangaroo walks into a bar and says to the bartender, Blood is the lipstick of wounds. The bartender does not know how he said it or why. I am one of the lords of crazy beauty. Few are anointed, many imitate. I shall make a tenth muse, the goddess of beauty, and she shall rule the other nine. Prometheus stole his fire from heaven, but we, lords of crazy beauty, have filled our fennel rods with fire from hell. Our beauty is infernal. We are the keepers of a strange and crack-brained music. We rise out of the pyres of dying suns. We are night magic, and the light in us streams from crazy comets. We are maniacs who dance our furious bacchanals in the imagination of God. We are the black sons of genius. Poetry has no other mission than to transmute history. There is no exquisite beauty without some strangeness in the proportion. For beauty is nothing but the beginning of terror, which we are barely able to endure, and it amazes us so, because it serenely disdains to destroy us. Every angel is terrible. The death of a beautiful woman is, unquestionably, the most poetical topic in the world. Beauty is unbearable, drives us to despair, offering us, for a minute, the glimpse of an eternity that we should like to stretch out over the whole of time. The theory of art for art's sake is valid in so far as it can be taken as an exhortation to the artist to stick to his job. It never was and never can be valid for the spectator, reader, or auditor. Sounds from Zapsplat.